I'm here today with Brandon Rencher and Venikia Samantha Williams, authors of a new book titled Liberating Church, a 21st Century Hush Harbor Manifesto from Cascade Books. Brandon Rencher is a minister, organizer, teacher, and facilitator. As a serial innovator, Brandon, with a team of friends and neighbors, planted the Good Neighbor Movement, a multiracial, queer-affirming, black-led, alternative spiritual community organized as a network of contemplative activist groups based in Greensboro, North Carolina. Brandon is an ordained elder in the Western North Carolina Conference of the United Methodist Church and serves on several local faith-based and social justice committees and boards. He's written for Sojourners, The Other Journal, Missio Alliance, and other publications. Venikia Samantha Williams is the current campaign manager for Media 2070, a media, separation, media reparations project. Prior to this work, she was the editorial and engagement director of a nonprofit responsible for training other nonprofits, universities, and community members in justice-informed service and operations. Venikia serves as a committee member for Drum Majors Alliance and aids the work of Sanctuary Consulting and School of Love. You can learn more about the book and its authors at liberatingchurch.com. And so this is the book that we're talking about. Many congratulations to both of you for uh, all the work that you did to uh, make that happen. Um, congratulations. I'm always thrilled when I, you know, find out about someone launching, you know, basically their first book. So uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a lot of work, right. I know. Uh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. A lot of dedication, a lot of effort. So thank you for persevering um, to do that. Um, but before we talk about the book, maybe each of you could like tell us a little bit more about your background than what I briefly touched on. Okay. Vinicky, you want to go first? No, I'll take it to you. Okay. All right. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Well, I think what's important to say that's not said in the, all the things that I, that I do is, is uh, a little bit more about, um, you know, what is, what has shaped me, who has shaped me. I am, um, you know, uh, from a little small town in rural North Carolina, eastern North Carolina, called Southern Pines. And, um, you know, the person who probably uh, shaped my understanding of faith and activism the most is my mom. Her name is Vicki, Vicki Locklear. And, um, and, you know, she, you know, even when I was a young boy and she would <clears throat> take me to, to church. Um, we kind of grew up going to both Baptist and uh, Holiness Pentecostal churches. Um, she, she just was always kind of pushing the edges, pushing, you know, um, pushing the envelope, <laughs> um, you know, connecting with and bringing the, the, the wrong kinds of people um, to service uh, and connecting with them out in the community. And, uh, and she just was a free thinker and just kind of, you know, just moved to the beat of her own drum. What I later learned is that that was, you know, the way that she lived out her faith, the way that she lived out her calling was a part of a, a, a richer, you know, um, a, a, a rich legacy that I now would call the Black prophetic tradition. Um, and, and see myself as um, having been shaped first by her, but then, you know, over time, um, learning of other voices and uh, witnesses uh, that have, have shaped me deeply. And then I think the other thing I want to say <clears throat> is that I am uh, married to um, my best friend and um, uh, we call ourselves love and life partners, uh, Erica Rencher. Um, she is, um, you know, a, a faith leader and cultural organizer and educator and just a wonderful human being. And we've, 
you know, really been on this journey together for, you know, a couple of decades, you know, um, of trying to live out radical faith in local communities um, in ways that is both deeply um, about um, loving ourselves really deeply and building community and trying to change change the world, change the local community. And I have two sons. Um, my, my namesake, Brandon II, we call him Philip, which is our middle name. And my um, he's my oldest and my youngest, Morris. Um, and they are just beautiful, beautiful, um, uh, you know, elementary age black boys that, you know, we just, um, just adore them. And, um, and so that's sort of, just a little bit more about me personally that, that speaks more to the kind of deeper parts of who I am. Very cool. Very cool. Vaniki, how about you? Yeah. And so to try to follow that up, um, <laughs> I would say the things that weren't mentioned within the bio, thank you for that introduction, um, is some of my faith-rooted experience, uh, being a seminarian, being a faith organizer, being a person who has been in a bit of everyone's church um, and found critiques within a few of them, <laughs> all of them. And so when I speak, it's from um, that personal experience. But to echo some of the things that Brandon said, I would say the women within my family and within my lineage have taught me um, and embodied for me the person of Christ and and, and flesh God for me um, in ways that um, Luther <laughs> and Bonhoeffer have it, you know? Um, and it took me a while, I would say probably around middle school age before I realized that the things that my grandmother would say that just seemed riddled in mystery and like so prophetic was actually scripture. I'm like, that's, you plagiarizing. <laughs> Jesus said that, but it was, she was so in step with it that she could be talking about the most, um, and still could be talking about uh, the most ordinary thing and the supernatural being fused into it. Um, and so I always say that for my great grandmother and my grandmother, um, my life is evidence of their faithfulness. Um, and there are certain things and certain work um, that I'm now a part of that I don't do for fun. I, I make that quite clear, but in a sense where even MLK talks about being a prisoner to hope and not being able to be shaken loose from a few things, um, I see that as my generational blessing um, to, to faithfulness, to this work of justice, um, to be a faithful woman saying this is how it ought not to be. And while speaking those things, still acting on the benefit of those around me, you know, I'm called to love, feeding them, clothing them, loving on their children as though they're my own. And so um, I would say I am because they are. Uh, and yeah, it's it's amazing to think um, that we're future ancestors. And so I live in such a way to make those coming, coming um, behind me proud. Very cool. Very cool. So. Liberating Church is both a book and an organization. Is that is that correct? Well, you know, one way to talk about it, we might we might say that it's like a hub or a network. <clears throat> I don't, you know, we don't we don't have a five hundred one c three status. What what happened is that um, you know, in what when was this? This was in 27, 2016. In twenty sixteen. Um, at the Highlander Research and Education Center in Tennessee, 
um, some of the, the folks who are contributors, including myself of this book, were at a retreat um, convened by Brian, our friend, um, Alexia Sabatiera, mm, uh, yeah. of, of faith-rooted uh, activists and organizers from across the country to respond, to be kind of ready to respond and to think strategically about um, uh, a Trump presidency. <laughs> and um, and at that retreat was where the seeds of um, Liberating Church were, were really began to be planted. And a lot of it had to do with really reflecting on um, the hush harbors as a way for Black people in particular, um, but also our comrades and co-conspirators to, to be able to um, strategize and be able to um, practice spirituality in radical ways that prepared us um, for the work of a Trump presidency. Um, and, um, and able to do that outside of the surveillance of the dominant religious um, institutions, um, because this kind of way of thinking about faith as uh, a vehicle for social revolution is just not in step with the kind of, um, yeah, the, the, the kind of culture that exists in most of our religious institutions. So um, as a result of that, we began to talk to lots of friends, Venikia, lots of folks to say, hey, would you want to get in on this conversation? And eventually that um, we were able to get some funding and kind of honed in to say, we want to do some research around this and to write together. So I, I would say that we're like an unnetwork, um, uh, more than a, than, a, than an organization or an unincorporated organization. Maybe, maybe say it that way, which by the way, if you look at the, the, the black radical tradition, black predic tradition, those are, um, often the kinds of organizations that, um, that really get us free. So, so yeah. All that said, we are everything but a church, which is often, <laughs> which is often what people think because of the name, but we let it be known. We're not doing altar calls. We're not <laughs> like picking up ties in that way. Um, but as Brandon said, uh, we found a network amongst ourselves for uh, believers who were doing the work of deconstructing and reconstructing our faith for the times and saying what what might this look like for the people that we love who are looking for such a place as well? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, for those who are not familiar with Hush Harbors, can you talk a little about, share, share with you know, folks the history there? Yeah, such a such rich history. I might have to reach back on my bookshelf and show you some, some books too. But um, I think just a simple way to describe it is that um, let me not say simple, but a, a, a brief way to describe it is they were the invisible um, and illegal church of enslaved Africans. It's where enslaved Africans would go to blend their African traditional religions with a prophetic interpretation of Christianity or justice infused interpretation of Christianity um, and also to organize for, um, for political and social change. And how prevalent would you say that they were? Well, that's the thing. It's hard to know. They were secret. They didn't want to write records down. Or that's right. <laughs> that's right. What we know is um, you can look at the, um, the narratives of enslaved Africans, um, and there's lots of them, and there's, been, there's a lot of rich secondary literature that um, spends time reflecting on those where you where you can see that they were very proliferated 
um, across the South in particular, but we, we don't have a number. Like we can't, we don't have a, a sort of hard number of how many there were. Um, and, uh, and then also the spirituals were also the way that you can, you can get a sense of, um, the hush harbors because the hush harbors, though the, the spirituals weren't limited, they weren't, um, how do I say this? Hush harbors weren't the only site where spirituals were, were, um, created and where they were saying, but like, uh, but they were, uh, they were spaces where they were saying and where they were created. So in other words, it, you know, it, it, it's, it, you know, enslaved Africans created these, these, um, you know, some of them call it, some folks call them lament songs. Some folks call them work songs, um, liberation songs. They were created on the plantation as well. Um, but if you look deep into the meaning and the theology that's behind them, um, just underneath the surface, because many people look at them, view them as sort of otherworldly, but they were often used as code for going to the hush harbors and for organizing and for revolting. Um, and where did they learn that kind of theology? Like where, where did enslaved Africans learn to talk about Jesus and the spirit in that kind of way? They certainly didn't learn that in plantation churches, hmm. right? And the hush harbors were the site where they were formed in that, that theology. So. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so there's one thing to kind of do the research, you know, that you did and um, organizing and such, but it's nothing to write a book too. So what motivated you to do the work necessary for that? I mean, I think a big thing is that we had elders that said, right. That was the first thing, you know, folks like Stephen Ray, um, uh, even Albert Rabito, who's like probably the foremost um, scholar on um, Hush Harbors. His book, Slave Religion, is like, you know, um, you know, the Holy Grail, you know, in terms of black religious uh, writing. And um, they said, like, write, make sure you write. Um, we, we need we need we need you to be writing. So that's one one way. And they, they weren't they were just a couple of the elders. I can I mean, I think about um, Alexia was another Reverend Nelson Johnson here in Greensboro, North Carolina. They were like, you need to write. Right. So so that's one thing. I think the other motivation was that. Um, at least for me, I felt like. um producing a resource that spoke about, about the Hush Harbors as a model for um, church renewal, for church planting, for uh, faith-rooted activism, for me was a way of um, filling the gap or the void that I wish, like for, for the book that I wish I had when I was being shaped and trained. Um, it, I didn't have it. And so uh, so, it was, so it's a way to sort of um, to sort of fill that gap and to bear witness to each of our each of these communities and, and everyone within within our group, a way to bear witness to the ways in which we have, you know, done this as kind of trial by fire, you know, has, you know, um, trial and error as, um, you know, kind of kind of being cartographers of of this of this tradition without even always knowing that we were doing that. Hmm. And so, um, so writing felt like a really important way to make a contribution. Hmm. I would add to that. There were certain conversations that, that were being had and the, 
the best way, the easiest way to compile all of that, to curate all of that, to then have others then continue and continually add to that conversation we found to be um, creating a resource. And I'm sure in some, in some realm of our mind, a book was ultimately like part of that work, but it could have taken many, many different forms. And even how we ended up here wasn't how we originally thought that we would end up here. So um, how the spirit has even shaped this work is evidence of the things that we talk about within this manifesto of being able to stay nimble, stay, um, stay alert, stay, um, stay ready to be flexible and adaptable to those things. And so um, I would say in no way is this book exhaustive. There, there's probably um, some extended edition that we could write tomorrow, hmm. but <laughs> I, I don't know if we will, but <laughs> <laughs> there, there are other folks who can then add to that. But this was our first attempt, like we said, to, to write down those things for whomsoever would find it useful. Hmm. Nikki, I appreciate you saying that. Just, I want to say real quick, the, pe- the piece around um, <clears throat> the original forms, you're exactly right. Like, I think we had the idea that there may be a book but we have lots of ideas. So I think the other thing that's important to say is that it served us as a collective that like we are in different places. We're not all in the same city. So when we would, for example, go do research at a faith community, it was important to not only sort of come back and to sort of be, you know, uh, to write down what we saw and witnessed what we, the conversations that we had, but to put it in some kind of form where we could really collectively wrestle with the ideas. So in, in many ways, this book, like the work that Vaniki and I had to do was, was like taking a lot of pieces that came from our research and writing early on that wasn't necessarily intended to be a book and to shape it into something. So, so I think it's important to name that because, um, because that, that is a part of the story is that the reason why we created a book was in service to our own um, creativity, our own shared learning and processing, um, and our way to say, hey, we, we have done something together and let's, let's really um, archive this in a special way. Very cool. So um, the book is part of the Voices Project. Can you talk a little bit about that for people who are not familiar with it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Voices Project is um, a, a, uh, an organization that was founded by Leroy and Donna Barber um for um uh bipoc or um, um um faith leaders of color across the country to have a space um to to build together build community to learn together um to train together eventually they started an imprint of the voices project called voices publishing that would be an on-ramp for um, writers of color faith i think in particular faith writers of color to to um, you know to, to to increase the um, amount of faith writers of color in the in the publishing world, and so I, I think that um, the Voice Project has a con- a partnership with University Press and Whitfin Stock um, mm-hmm. in order to be a kind of um, a kind of liaison, a kind of um, uh, you know talent recruiter, if you will, for for those for those um, publishing houses. Okay, cool. So um, in the book, you describe eight guiding marks of a liberating church. Can you describe a few of those? 
Yes. Um, I'll begin with the one that I wrote on, which is sure. Ubuntu, Ubuntu um, South African principle and word, which says, um, I am because we are, which is even something that I said within uh, my introduction. And um, we kind of selected our marks. I, I don't really remember the process, but they truly did even select us and, and speak to us. And with that one in particular, it talks about um, interconnectedness. It talks about the healing that's required within community. Um, another that comes to mind is All God's Children Got Shoes, uh, which talks about um, the priesthood of all believers, uh, non-hierarchical um, leadership that's shown within community. Um, all of these marks that were then evidenced within the Hush Harbors that we spoke to before. Um, another that truly blesses me is Talking Book. Um, which uh, for my seminary experience wasn't something that I, I was taught to do, um, but it, it tells us that we're able to be in conversation with scripture. Scripture is talking to you. The spirit is breathing and illuminating things, and you get to talk back to it. Um, and so, so those are some of the marks that um, were present within the Hush Harbors and marks that we say should be a part and visible and vibrant within 21st century Hush Harbor faith spaces and organizing spaces. Um, Brandon, I'm curious, what are some others? Uh, there are only eight, but maybe a couple yeah. more than that. <clears throat> I, 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 I speak to the one that I wrote on, Still Away, um, which is about, uh, you know, we talk about it as like holy deception or fugitivity. You know, what does it look like to embrace um, the covert nature of discipleship, the covert nature of, um, of justice. Uh, and the way that I try to make meaning out of that for a 21st century context is what we might call an organizing conversation. You know, oftentimes, for example, in activism, <clears throat> what we see in the media and the news <clears throat> is often the, the outcome, the, you know, the, or, or the, you know, um, uh, you know, a lot of work that has been developing, the protest or the march, you know, the policy that's been changed, the press conference. But what it takes to get there is a bunch of conversations, um, knocking on doors, making phone calls, um, having meetings. And those are not things that are, are public in the same way that the marches and the protests and the press conferences are. And yet they are creating a kind of a kind of public, a kind of counter public in some ways, where we get to wrestle with um, the gap between the way the world is and the way the world, the world that we want to see in those in those um, unmediated, you know, very free conversations. And, um, and so so still away, very literally for Hush Harbors meant that we have to leave the plantation and we have to leave the plantation church to talk to one another in ways that make sense for, for how we understand language and culture and in order to make meaning and in order to, uh, to plan for a different world. Um, and so, and that took having to be covert. And so what does that look like for today? And, and I try to make some meaning out of that in the book. Interesting. Interesting. So um, you also described the research that you did as six different ministry communities. Yep. Um, how did you select those six? Yeah, you know, at first, we, you know, 
any research pro- like we were so ambitious at first and that's why I, that's why I mean that's why it was important I appreciate your question around where you are you an organization because we the conversation was so big um and ambitious uh and it still is but but at first like that was the extent of it we just we wanted to do everything <laughs> um and in fact at at one point in the beginning we were actually wanting to also um, look at uh, black and brown faith communities. And, and but of course, with any book project and research project, you've got to hone it, figure out that research question, you know, get focus. really, yeah, focus. focus it in. So um, we started to look for faith communities that we felt like, um, you know, we weren't sure, but, but like that we, that we su- suspected might reflect, be reflective of modern hush harbors. And then eventually we had a, ment- a mentor um, who uh, we were resourced with through the Louisville Institute that funded um, our research, um, Dr. Day. And she said, you know, I really would encourage you all to consider autoethnography. Like, don't, don't just go out and study other communities. But if, like, look at the communities that you are a part of. And so that then, first of all, that helped us to narrow. <laughs> it helped us to narrow. Um, and so the communities are a mixture of faith communities represented by our core team and a few others that um, that we, you know, learned about because we were connected to them or because we, um, we, we, we learned about them that we felt like might be examples of modern hush harvest. And then the last thing I'll say is, we, we also knew that we couldn't, it, we wanted to also limit, create some other kind of limitations to get, to get focus. And, and that's when we decided, you know, given that the faith communities represented by our core team are almost all new faith communities or, or um, startups. Why don't we just say that even the communities that we're going to look at that are, that are external to our core team are, are also going to be startups. And so, so we both, we wanted to look at um, faith communities that um new startup communities um, in black neighborhoods, uh, in black spaces. Um, and so that's, that kind of helped us to really hone in on the, the, the faith communities that we, where we went and did interviews and surveys. Hmm. So who would you say the book is most intended for? It's a great question. Um, I would say um, folks who... First, I would say that it's for it's written uh, very specifically for um, black faith leaders, black people of faith, um, who are in particular asking questions about um, what church is and what it can be, um, asking questions about the the role that faith plays and spirituality plays in justice work, um, and then I would say from there, um, any folks who are allies or comrades or, or, or um, co-conspirators of that project that, that Black folks are, 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 are uh, asking questions about. Um, and, and of course, that includes, um, uh, you know, uh, you know f- folks from many different backgrounds, ra- ra- you know, social locations and, and racial identities. And um, so, so that's sort of how I would take a first, first um, uh, go at it. What about you, Vinicky? How would you put it? I would say primarily it's for people in community. Um, And so we even say within a portion of the book that we 
we structured it in such a way that it should be read together. Um, and so whether you find yourself or consider yourself a ministry or movement leader, um, if you're in that movement and in that space with other people, it should be read in a way that y'all are applying um, all, the, all that you're gleaning together. Um, I feel like there are some individual takeaways, of course, um, things that speak to um, some spiritual enrichment that could be personally done. But if it's, it's not for the collective, <laughs> then we, we failed to do what we thought that we would do. Because like we said, we did this for us. And so we're also thinking about all the other us's mm-hmm. out there um, where people find themselves. And Brandon talked about people of faith, but I would even then extend it to people who have um, sort of divorced themselves from faith and are still trying to say, but there are some principles that, that were within that space that I still need to apply wherever I now find myself. I'm thinking of people who, um, even within the course of the pandemic, have found themselves um, even further removed from faith spaces, but are now um, still finding communities elsewhere. The principles and those marks are still then applicable wherever you then place and find yourself. Well, I certainly learned from it. You know, I I really thought that the eight marks were very interesting, the meanings and the history behind them and stuff. So for what it's worth, I I learned a lot from it. (laughs) Um, So what would be like the number one thing that you'd like those readers to take away from the book? It's a good question. Um, You know, I I think that I think it's a feeling first, I think, like for me, like a feeling of, um, I think, courage and bravery, like to to um, to believe themselves in terms of what they have seen and what they have not seen in their communities. Um, and bravery and courage to be able to do something about that. Um, one person at a time. I mean, that's that's what the Hush Harbors were. They weren't mega churches. You know? Um, they they fueled social movements. They weren't themselves the kind of visible movements that we associate with mm-hmm, mm-hmm. social movements now. So to be bold about um, experimenting with um, new ways of being, um, being, being true to the, to the, the, the teachings of Jesus, being true to the, the witness of the ancestors. Um, and that, that can start in very small ways, uh, with just a few people. Um, and so I think, I, th- that's, I think that's what comes, comes, comes to mind for me now. Yeah. Um, I agree with that. And since, in the sense of a feeling, there should be a refreshing and a renewal, um, a renewed belief and hope that um, something else is possible. And we're seeing glimpses of it now that already and not yet that you were talking about, Brandon. Um, And the fact that um, it's not a work that other people are doing, but you yourself should be caught up in it, Mm -hmm. um, caught up in the whirlwind. And um, I, I think that it's a beautiful thing to say that whatever the spirit of God is doing next, don't, don't, don't leave me out of it. Um, and so if nothing else, um, as we find ourselves 
continuously, continually being freed from glory to glory, being made new and being made whole. Um, I hope that this book is a great resource in that. It felt like, you know, they're role models, right? And I mean, not that anybody's perfect. I mean, uh, but it felt like, you know, you were kind of identifying traits, right? Positive traits, and that these were organizations that were embodying that. And so, as you said, I think, Brandon, you know, anybody that follows, you know, is looking for that type of role model um, can be encouraged and learn from them and um, have more confidence, I guess, you know, that experimentation is good. You know, there's no one answer for anything complex. So uh, hopefully the book provides those kinds of things too. So, That's right. We intentionally, we intentionally in the in the in the back with the with the different communities. I love that you, you bring that up. We have a section where it says ancestors um, that they uh, that each of those faith communities kind of remind us of, mm-hmm. and so it really is. You know, um, it really is a place to look for role models. I really I really appreciate that. The other thing too is that you know there's lots of resources in there like poems, you know, s- song lyrics. There are um, prayers. I also, I also think it's the kind of thing that like could literally be used in a gathering. Like someone could could take this into a gathering to begin to have one of those covert meetings to say what you know what what's possible and to pray one of the prayers there. You know, well, just um, those eight topics you know lend itself to like a book discussion group too. Yeah, absolutely. We got the the, the, the discussion questions at the back are absolutely meant for that, you know? Get you um, an eight-week series. That's right, you know? Um, and the last thing I say is, you know, we got data in the back. You know, we did, we work hard to, do, you know, for that data. And I think that that's also, you know, important for, for, for folks that, that um, you know, Reverend William Barber often says, uh, you know, if we're going to be loud, let's not be wrong, <laughs> you know? And so, you know, we were really, we really wanted to say, hey, we, we, we're being, we're saying something really bold in this book. Um, and, um, and we and we have some data to to really both qualitative and quantitative to really sort of speak to it as well. So so yeah, very cool. It's nice when science and religion kind of work together, isn't it? <laughs> what a concept. Um, so um, looking forward, where's the project going to go next? Are there other things that you all are launching that you'd like to share with people? Listen, we're just trying to get on the road right now. <laughs> you know, with the with the pandemic and just the challenges of beginning to kind of open back up everything, just trying to really get the book out there and, and promote it, to be honest with you. I think I think again, we're a group of of creatives and innovators. And like when we start getting together again in person in particular, some stuff is gonna start brewing and bubbling over because it always does. And so I'm sure there'll be opportunities. So like, for example, we had a conference and during the a virtual conference in the pandemic called Liberating Church and um, the contributors and many friends were a part of that. And so who knows, we might, we might do another conference at some point. There are so many um, ideas, but I think to go back to what Brandon mentioned, even within the book, um, the wisdom of honing in and doing a thing well before like adding all the other things that come to mind. And so we're just trying to be faithful to this. Cause like you said, it was such an 
arduous process to even get this done. We want to make sure that as many people know about it and as many hands and hearts as possible. And if there are um, ways with ease that we can do it in other creative ways, a podcast, doing another conference, things of that sort, who knows? Keep your eyes peeled. <laughs> Follow us on social media because we might make an announcement in the dead of night. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, it's good to finish something well before you move on to something else. So I, I totally support that, that notion. So again, the title of the new book is Liberating Church, a 21st Century Hush Harbor Manifesto. Uh, and you can learn more at liber liberatingchurch.com. It was wonderful that you got that domain name. That's really convenient. <laughs> so thanks, you guys, for all that work and for sharing it with us today. Really appreciate that. Thanks so much, Brian. Good to be with you. Many thanks. Same here. Thanks, thanks for joining us. Right.